0: As we begin this morning, I would like to read these words from Isaiah. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and he shall be the stability of your times. A wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Father, as we come to you this morning, we submit to your authority. Sovereign Lord, the one who has created us in your own image that we might know You and love You and receive Your love. Father, I pray that Your presence will be sensed by all because we know You've promised in Your Word where Your people gather, You are there in in their midst. And so we trust that You will bless our study of Your Word this morning, that these words (coughs) penned so long ago will be to each one of us as if they were spoken to us by Your Spirit this day. Lord, wherever Your Word is being Proclaimed on this property, in the various classes, and in the service this morning, we trust you to anoint and empower. And we ask, Lord, for the many who are at council and who will be returning from council today, that you grant safe journey, and you will bless every aspect of the fruit of that time together. We commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 18th chapter of 1 Samuel, I'd like to read the first five verses to begin with this morning. 1 Samuel 18, beginning at verse 1. Now it came about when he finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the minute war. and was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. We just finished the chapter 17, which of course is the famous chapter of the combat between David and Goliath and the miracle that God worked there through this man because of his faith, and then Saul's conversation with David after that, almost as if he'd forgotten who David was and was reintroduced. And so that chapter begins, on, this chapter here begins on that note when he had finished speaking to Saul, we're told, and then it goes right into the relationship between David and Jonathan. What we have here is a record of Jonathan, in effect, adopting David as his brother a very close relationship develops, uh, one that is, would be referred to as brotherly love. This developed between David and Jonathan, and their souls were knitted together, we're told, because Jonathan loved David, and, and I think we have to assume and, and realize that uh, this was reciprocal. Some scholars, of course, as soon as they read this, uh, because they've got ulterior motives and their mind is off in a, in a different track, are going to and have literally said that this they believe was a homosexual relationship. Now, for us <laughs> who have been raised in the church, that, that of course is as a foreign an idea as one can be. But in our modern society, this is one of the passages that many will turn to who believe in homosexuality as a, as a normal practice and where there are churches where this goes on and, and even pastors who are, quote, gay. However, The word, which is translated love here, between Jonathan and David, refers to a deep, trusting relationship and is totally devoid of any sexual meaning at all. In fact, if there had been anything of that nature here, the Hebrew word would have been included, which is translated to know or to have sexual intercourse, would have been used here. The word yada would have been used instead of the more general word for an abiding, trusting relationship. So there is none of that here, of course, and and we know that from our many years of studying, but there are those, and we need to be aware that there are those who who try to create out of this an excuse for uh, homosexuality being practiced as part of, quote, Christianity. Uh, Saul here sees how well Jonathan accepts David. Now, this could have been a question, of course, to Saul. Saul's son is, is his right-hand man, so to speak. He was to be his heir to the throne. He was um, a man who was uh, a hero in the eyes of all Israel. And so David has almost stepped into Jonathan's position here. And so Saul was very concerned in how, how Jonathan would take this position now that David has gained. And we find here, of course, that with Jonathan accepting Saul so wonderfully, this allows, did I say Saul, Jonathan accepting David so wonderfully. Saul had no hesitation, therefore, at least at the, at the beginning here, in making uh, David a permanent part of his royal household. Now, this, this will change, as we know, very quickly here. But at first, uh, this is his intention. Now, Jonathan had already earned a hero status in Israel. Jonathan, you remember, had led the Israelites in a, in a mighty victory uh, prior to the David and Goliath thing and was, was considered by all of Israel as a truly great man, a champion in Israel. And here we find that he, f- he discovers within himself a kindred spirit with David, because like David was unwilling to brook this kind of uh, insult against his people and against his God by this pagan Philistine. So Jonathan had a similar feeling towards the enemies of, uh, of God's people. And so what we discover here is that he, he demonstrates to all that he is not looking upon David as a rival at all, but is accepting him as if he were a brother. Because we read here that he takes off his robe and he gives him his robe, his, his sort of royal robe, if you will. He gives him his armor, he gives him his sword, he gives him his bow. What, what he's doing here is, in effect, knighting David. Now, there's no such thing as knighthood yet but it's the same concept. He is accepting David as equal to himself. He's bringing David alongside himself. And and he's showing everyone that he totally accepts David and there is no jealousy or feeling of of fear on Jonathan's part. He is is creating a co-equal situation here as if they were twin brothers almost. Because of this relationship, Saul was able to send David on missions that really should have gone to Jonathan. He was able to save, uh, send David on official royal missions out to uh, report here or, or to get information there and even to lead units of the army. This was a position that had belonged to Jonathan up to this point in time. Now, that's not saying that he didn't also do this with Jonathan too, but, but David almost supplants him in, in that uh, position. Now, the, qu- the question is, does Jonathan know that Samuel has anointed David to be successor to Saul as king. And I would say probably not. Because I don't think David broadcast that. And David's brothers certainly didn't broadcast that. So, and and there's nothing to indicate that Samuel broadcast that either. It was something that seemed to happen within the household of Jesse there in Bethlehem that David and and his father and his brothers knew about, but really it didn't go beyond that. And so what we're, we're seeing in, in the 17th chapter and now in the 18th chapter is God is building the foundation that would enable David to step into Saul's uh, position without anybody feeling that David was a usurper. I think, though, it had to cross Jonathan's mind that here was a man who was probably more worthy than he himself to be king in Israel. Now, the question is, did Jonathan also know... This event that we studied a while back, that's recorded in the 13th chapter, of 1 Samuel. In the 13th chapter, of 1 Samuel, we go to verse 12. This is after uh, Saul had, was threatened by the Philistines, and rather than waiting for Samuel to come and make the offering, he went ahead and made the offering himself. And so we read, therefore I said, this is Saul speaking, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept What the Lord commanded you. Now, this was the word of Samuel to Saul. Does Jonathan know this word? Did Jonathan hear this word? Did Samuel or Saul tell Jonathan of this word? Well, Scripture doesn't say. So we can only assume. We can assume that maybe Jonathan knew. And if Jonathan knew that, then Jonathan would be thinking, well, there is a man that God is going to choose to, to, to replace my father when he dies, and it won't be me. And if he's thinking along that line, he could easily be thinking that David would be that man. Jonathan, if this is true, Jonathan here demonstrates absolutely no jealousy, no fear of David. And instead, he reveals a selflessness, which is very much in keeping with the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Let me read a couple of verses from there because it seems so fitting here, especially in light of those who like to tear down this relationship and create something that it is not. In in 1 Corinthians 13 we read these words in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth. When you think about that and we think about the, wor- the, the, you know, the love that they talk about in our society today and how, how uh, opposite it is of what we read here. This is a kind of love that can only be put in a person's heart by God because it's, it's divine love. And this is the kind of love I think that we see here that has developed between David and Jonathan. Jonathan would one day ultimately dr- die very tragically but during his life, he displays a very sterling character. And I think that you find in Jonathan a man who, who can be described as Christ-like in many ways. Jonathan was not denied the throne in Israel because of any fault of his own. He was denied the throne in Israel because of the folly of his father. And because his father had constantly rebelled against God and done, disobeyed, God simply said, I'm taking the throne away from you and your family and giving it yet to another man. Although the Holy Spirit, and we were told that, and we read it in more than one place, although the Holy Spirit had departed from Saul, the Holy Spirit had obviously not departed from Jonathan. The Holy Spirit was upon Jonathan. And I think that it was undoubtedly the presence of the Holy Spirit in David and in Jonathan that knitted them so tightly together. I think that we all sense this when we run across somebody who is, who's really, you know, we've never met before, but we discover very quickly that they're born-again Christians and they're serving the Lord. You, you begin to develop an affinity for this person, and uh, it's the Spirit of God who dwells within the, the hearts of believers, especially if we're walking in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Of course, if we're walking in disobedience, there's a barrier that we are allowing to arise in our lives. But here, Jonathan and David are knit, I think, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in both of their lives. In the famous passage in 1 John, let me just read a couple of verses from 1 John chapter 4, having to do, of course, with love. In 1 John chapter 4, in verse 7, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God." Now, when, when we read that verse, we have to, we, we really quickly understand, we're not talking about the kind of love that they sing about in these country western songs, you know, or they sing about in the rock and roll popular music. That, that's not the kind of love that's being referred to at all because almost, that's almost all selfish love. It's love of myself and I want you to do what I want you to do for my sake. Um, This is a love where we give. It's it's self-giving. It's the kind of love which we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Down in verse 11 we read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I think if true believers actually loved one another as the scripture demands, there wouldn't be all this friction and fighting that there is within the church around the world, amongst themselves, I mean. What is, it? what is it? The Christian church is the uh, only organization in the world that goes around shoots its own wounded. Somebody is wounded and we cast all the blame on them for the problem that they're having uh, in their lives. Verse 5 of this passage summarizes, I think, the next few months or so. We, we don't know how much time. The time isn't spelled out here. But the time that took place shortly after David's victory over Goliath. Saul sent David out on various miss- missions. And placed him in charge of at least one and maybe more military units. In all of these assignments, the scripture says, David prospered. The Hebrew there means acted wisely. David acted wisely. He did the right thing in every circumstance. So we're talking about this obscure shepherd who was now not only known by all Israel, but was enthusiastically accepted by the people and even endorsed by the royal household. As what? The virtual champion of Israel, the one who is now on the mind, the forefront of the minds of all the people. I don't think it's very easy for us to put ourselves in that situation. Because today, if something's going on, somewhere we expect, well, the police, the CHP, the fire department, the medevacs, you know, they'll take care of the problem. But you go back to the time we're talking about, and Israel had no savior, of course, except God, but no human savior except the king. And the king they had was a bit of a turning into a bit of a flake. And he could only be in one place at one time. And there was no standing army in Israel. There was no police force in Israel. And so people always were feeling like they were out on the edge of impending disaster because you had the Philistines on one side, you had the Amalekites down in the south, you had the Ammonites and all the other ites scattered around. And even within the country, you had Gibeonites and Jebusites, pagans who were still living right in their midst. And so it was sort of like the way Israel is right now. You never know when the next missile's going to come in and blow up or when somebody's going to walk up all wired with bombs and blow all over you, you know? It's, it's tragic. It's, it's, there is no way to end this kind of tragedy except by God sending in the Messiah, if, if you will. And, of course, I think that the current... Palestine and Israel problem has only one solution and that's the return of Christ Because it's a hatred that goes back forever It's a hatred that goes every, all the way back to Ishmael and there isn't any way. It's going to be uh, solved Because everybody's implacable and whenever you're dealing with Islam You're dealing with a religion that's fatalistic. You're dealing with a religion where people who die blowing themselves up believe they're going instantly to paradise and it's gonna be all that much more wonderful Well, are they surprised? As I mentioned to my wife yesterday, I wonder how many have some rather unkind things to say about Muhammad once they get to the other side and discover he's totally misled them, all all these millions of people, all these centuries. But of course, everybody is responsible for his or her own standing before God, and you can't blame it on Muhammad. I think the very fact that David could wear... Jonathan's robe, Jonathan's armor, carry his bow, carry his sword, and lead military units, tells us again, this is not a 12-year-old. This is not a little kid. I'm going to go out there and lead troops. No. Just because God empowered him to slay Goliath would not give him the right to command military units in the army. You have to earn that right. I think he was an adult. And I don't think there's any question about that. Let's go on at verse 6 of 1 Samuel 18. And it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul became very angry for this saying, displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house. While David was playing the harp with his hand as usual and a spear was in Saul's hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand. So he went out and came in before the people. And David was prospering in all his ways before the Lord. The Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. Then Saul became very angry for his, for this saying displeased him. The NIV says, galled him. Galled him, yeah, well, that's as appropriate, isn't it? After the victory in the Elah Valley, the army was returning home. The army had disbanded. Many had returned to their tents, but Saul was leading his retinue back to Gibeah, up into the highlands where his home was and where his, quote, royal palace was. There wasn't any palace as we think of one yet. And the news of David's single-handed victory over Goliath, of course, had already spread like wildfire through the land. Good news, bad news too, spreads very rapidly, doesn't it? So as they return, along the way, there were numerous villages. And out of these villages came the women of the cities of these towns to musically laud their victors. Now this, of course, is reminiscent of the great uh, celebration that occurred after that wonderful miracle that God performed at the Red Sea. Let me read these words to you from Exodus chapter 15. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. And Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. So this is sort of already been, the pattern has been set. And I'm not sure that these ladies were consciously thinking, Oh, well, Miriam did this, we've got to do that. I think it was just a spontaneous feeling. Because the Philistines were a horrible threat to the society. And if the Philistines had been victorious, they would all be enslaved. They they would be serving the Philistines. And you have to understand, ladies in that society had no power. And if an enemy comes over and controls the land, the women, in effect, become used and abused even more. And so they were very joyful that they were still free. Their joy was rooted in the fact that by the defeat of the Philistines, they would not be subject to them and their pagan ways. Unfortunately, the words of the song were probably ill advised. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh, whoever invented the song, <clears throat> somebody had to think it up in the first place, didn't think, you know, what, what this could mean. Now, according to Josephus, now, of course, Josephus didn't live till the first century, and he's writing the traditions that have come down from the Jewish <laughs> elders down through the centuries but he says that the married women were singing their praises to Saul and the unmarried women were singing the praises of David. Well, that's very logical. The married women were older, probably. Saul was married. David was not married. (laughs) So all the young ladies were, were doing their thing in praising him. But Saul was a very proud man. And without the Holy Spirit to keep him in balance, he was overcome by jealousy. Traditionally, it doesn't matter who performs the great victory. You, you go down through the pages of history and you read about Hannibal and you read about Alexander the Great and you read about Julius Caesar and the great victories that were won, even Douglas MacArthur and General Eisenhower. How many times do you hear about the heroic individual who maybe turned the tide of battle because of, of some certain thing he did? Well, in, in our day, because of the Congressional Medal of Honor, you hear about your Senator Inouye's and other individuals. But uh, down through the pages of history, you don't even know who the men were that made up the armies of Alexander the Great. We don't even have their names or, or Hannibal's army. We don't, we don't have them. But how many of them perform mighty feats and help to win the victory for them? Do they get any credit? No. The credit always goes to the king or the commanding general. When Rome held a great triumph for the victory of their army, who was the one who was lauded in the triumph? The general of the army, regardless of who actually may have been responsible for the key moments in battle that turned the tide in favor of their side. It, it's, we see this in our own history. For example... When when John Burgoyne was coming down out of Canada uh, towards New York in the American Revolution and the American militia gathered to resist him, General Washington sent a man by the name of Nathaniel Gage to go up there and command the militia. But when the battle broke out, Gage was in his tent biting his fingernails. He didn't know what to do. So one of the other men took charge. His name was Benedict Arnold. And Benedict Arnold led them in a mighty victory. And what did he get for it? Well, he got nothing and that's one of the reasons he became Benedict Arnold. <laughs> he said, well, if the Americans aren't going to give me anything for it, I'm going to go to the British, and maybe they'll give me something for what I've done, you know. So you, you hear of Gage, but you know, I mean, Gage got all the credit for the victory, and, and Arnold was the one who won it. He was almost ubiquitous on the battlefield, and Gage was back, biting his nails, didn't know what to do next, you know, kind of general. And, and so we can see here that for one of the men under the king to be lauded higher than the king. This is inappropriate. This is just not done. And yet it was done here. Saul was given pride of place. Yes, they did praise Saul first. Saul has slain his thousands. Well, that, that was good. David, however, is credited with ten times as many. That wasn't so good. And so Saul was galled, as, <laughs> as we heard there this morning. Yeah, this was a breach of tradition, Jonathan. Yes, well, just the, the number one versus the tens of thousands. Um, did David probably uh, participate in the whole routing and? In- we don't know. Because I mean, that wasn't what he was there for. I, I didn't right. picture that, but I was just no. wondering if maybe. Was- uh, since we every time we see David, he's carrying glass head around in his hand. <laughs> 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 he probably didn't participate in the rest of the route. Because he wasn't one of the soldiers. He wasn't one of the men there for battle. He was just a shepherd walk-on kind of guy, you know, uh, who did the thing. So what they're doing is because he slew the giant Goliath, they're turning that into tens of thousands, you know. It's just a statement of valor. So this breach of tradition ticked off Saul, and really rightly so, and caused him to fear for his crown, as you might imagine. Well, what else can he have but the crown? He's got all the honor, especially since Samuel had already said to Saul, you will lose the crown, and you will give up the kingdom, and a man of my own choosing will replace you. He already knew this. Saul already knew this. And so this seems to be confirming it, and he may be beginning to see a little inkling here that maybe this man is God's choice. A little bit of humility and brokenness could have made a big difference. Uh, Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's all part. And, and, and that, of course, is exactly what David David uh, exudes, as we see through this passage. Certainly, Saul's anger was partially based on the fact that he had been humiliated by Goliath for 40 days. He was commander of the army, and this guy was coming out and ins- ins- insulting the army of Israel, uh, basically calling them a bunch of wimps and insulting the God of Israel, and yet... Saul could do nothing about it, or Saul did nothing about it. He didn't send Abner out. He didn't send Jonathan out. He didn't go out himself. He just sat there and waited. And he wasn't really in his tent in deep prayer either. He was just wondering what to do next. And so when this young shepherd comes along and goes out and does what he should have done, as if it were no big deal, you could imagine why Saul would be very fearful. This this passage we've looked at before, but you know, there there's certain passages of scripture that I feel we probably can't repeat too often. In 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, we read these words at the end of the chapter. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God in righteousness and sanctification and redemption that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is what's coming out of this. Saul would boast in his own strength. If Saul had gone out there and if Saul had knocked off Goliath, oh, he would have been, you couldn't have lived with him. You know? He would have been, he'd have polished his armor up and he'd have put jewels in his helmet and who knows what he would have done. But this walk-on shepherd does the job. Not with a sword or a bow or a javelin, but with a rock from a sling. So we can understand, I think, Saul's feelings. They're very logical feelings. They're worldly feelings. Now Saul did not ostracize David immediately because of this song, but he began from that moment on to watch David very closely to see if he could even begin to see the slightest hint of self-ambition or disloyalty to him. It was seen from this passage that Saul had no sooner returned to Gibeah than the evil spirit renewed its imp- oppression of Saul, only this time seeming with even greater force than before. Saul experienced literally an altered state of consciousness. We're told that he raved in the house. Raved in the house. Now he's not raving about his wife's cooking here. He's a raving lunatic, is what we're talking about here in this passage. Apparently, he began to speak loudly and incoherently so that everyone within a relatively large distance could hear him speaking in such a manner. What does David do? David now, who slayed his tens of thousands, David immediately goes back and picks up his original task. He grabs his lyre and goes in and begins to play music to soothe his king. This was his original job in the household. This is a task to which he had originally been called. And he returns to it without a whimper, without a complaint, without hesitation. What we see here in this passage is spiritual warfare at its most intense. David was filled by the Holy Spirit. And he was God's anointed man to replace Saul as king in Israel. Satan, of course, wanted Israel to be led by evil men. Satan didn't want a godly man on the throne of Israel. He wanted an evil man on the throne of Israel because Satan wanted to destroy Israel. And Satan, if you look through the books of the kings and the chronicles, you discover Satan had his way most of the time. Because when, uh, when uh, David, of course, after he was king, Solomon came along, after Solomon died, you have Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the divided kingdom, and then you have a whole list of kings. You have 19 kings in the northern kingdom, not single one of which did right in the eyes of God. You had 20 kings in the southern kingdom, only five of which did right in the sight of God, in, in the way that David did. And so you see that Satan tended to have his way, it seems. So the evil spirit played on Saul's suspicions and inti- inspired him to kill David. Was Saul completely incoherent? Was he a raving lunatic? I don't think so. Because notice it says in verse 11, I will pin David to the wall. Well, if you're a raving lunatic, you don't think that coherently. I have this spear in my hand, and I can pin this guy to the wall? No, you don't even think like that. But he did. So he was being guided his insanity was the product of an evil spirit, and the evil spirit was leading him to this action. The heart that is in rebellion against God is totally susceptible to the manipulation of the evil one. It's a very, very important point for us to always remember. If we are in rebellion against God, we are manipulatable by Satan, because we don't have, we're not listening to the spirit. We're quenching, we're grieving the spirit. And as a result, the enemy speaks to us and we hear him. And we often are easily moved to act in a foolish manner. If Saul had successfully killed David as he intended to at that moment, the result would have been the exact opposite of what he wanted. David was so highly honored throughout the land and even in the royal court that had Saul succeeded in killing him, Saul probably would have been overth- overthrown by his own royal ho- household as a madman and probably even killed. This has happened many times in history. There's an interesting little vignette that comes from the 12th century in which there was a king in England whose name was Henry II. And Henry II wanted the whole land to, s- to submit to him and even wanted the church to do that. And so he said that he didn't want the church courts to be separate from the royal courts in the sense of being able to set people free who were guilty of crimes simply because they were within the church. And so he appointed his own buddy, a man by the name of Thomas Becket, to be Archbishop of Canterbury to do his bidding. But when Thomas Becket became Archbishop of Canterbury, he decided he ought to do what God wanted him to do, or at least what he thought the church would have him to do. So he did not kneel down or give in. To what Henry wanted him to do. So, after this went on for many years, and there was just, just violent argument between the two, Henry one day, just while he was having a bunch of drinks with some of his buddies, just said, How come none of my guys who call themselves my loyal men have done anything about this pestilent priest? So, Forum went over there and went into the uh, Canterbury Cathedral to the altar and killed Thomas Becket right at the altar. If you go to art, if you go to the cathedral of Canterbury today, the spot where that happened is still kind of a dedicated place, and and of course, that was a, um, a place of uh, pilgrimage. You remember Canterbury Tales, the the book. It talks about the kind of people who were going to that uh, the tomb of, uh, of Thomas Beckett. Well, the repercussions were such. I mean, the people were just flabbergasted that the king would order. Now, he didn't really intentionally order this. He was just shooting off his mouth, and he had a few too many drinks. And, but he, you know, as Truman said, the buck stops here. The buck stopped with Henry, and he had to take the blame. And the people of the country were just up in arms that you would slay the Archbishop of Canterbury at the altar of the cathedral. What kind of paganism is this? And Henry VIII was, I mean, he had to crow. He he had to back down, and and he lost the whole point he was after. He was defeated because of this folly. And so it would have been even worse here for Saul. Had David been killed at the height of his newfound glory by Saul while he was a raving lunatic, why Saul would have, of course, been put away for good. Fortunately for Saul, David dodged the spear. Not once, but twice, we're told. We might ask, why did David come back a second time after he basically dodged the spear? And I think it was because David did not believe that Saul was really, when he was in his sane moments, trying to kill him. He had quick reflexes, too. He obviously had quick reflexes, yeah. Because we're not talking about, you know, Saul being where those file cabinets are and David being against his wall. He was probably just a short distance from him. God was obviously with him. Verse 12 of this 18th chapter summarizes the underlying root of Saul's fear of David. For the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. And Saul knew that. Saul knew the Lord was not with him, and he knew the Lord was with David, and Saul was frightened. Finally, Saul decided to temporarily solve his problem by sending David away from the royal court and making him a regimental commander at least this could be viewed as a legitimate promotion and he would avoid the criticism that would fall upon Saul if he simply ostracized David and said, David, you're out of here, be gone, go go to Philistia. Now, if he had said that, then he would have been viewed as wrong. But by promoting David and giving regimental command, this looked like a good thing that he had done. I don't want to finish today without emphasizing what I think is really crucial. Uh, from, from this passage. In verse 14, And David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. These verses give us clear insight into the true meaning of life. David had not allowed his victory over Goliath to go to his head. Instead, he was humbly serving the Lord. He would just go back and play the lyre for Saul when Saul was in his, in his fits of, of depression, if that's what the Lord wanted him to do. Whatever the Lord wanted him to do, he would have been willing to go back and herd sheep some more. In fact, he might have preferred to do that to, to what he was doing. And because of his humble service, the Lord gave him wisdom and prospered him in his ways. The last phrase of verse 13 seems to indicate that David successfully uh, led his men in what are unspecified military campaigns. But see, what this does is it demonstrates that David's victory over Goliath was not just a fluke, you know, a lucky throw of the stone. It helps all to understand that he was truly a gifted military leader and that he was anointed by God. The close parallel with Joseph here is unmistakable, is it not? Joseph ardently served the Lord. Even when he was wrongly treated, he he humbly served the Lord, did what the Lord wanted him to do. And God exalted him to prime ministership in Egypt. David is just doing what God is directing him to do, and David, without even trying, is becoming more and more exalted in the land. Is he going out with a banner around his neck saying, I killed Goliath? You know, no. So, the key to true success, Christian success in life, the keys are, first of all, humility, and true humility can only come from God Himself. And secondly, stalwart obedience to God's Word. These can only characterize somebody who is filled with the Spirit of God. Let me read from also a a well-known passage in 1 Peter 1. Chapter 5, reading at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in proper time, casting your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, beyond the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. David is living proof of this passage, because David is facing the roaring lion who is inside Saul. And he's just a whisker away from death. I mean Saul was a was a warrior. He wasn't likely to just throw a spear any old direction. He knew how to throw a spear accurately. But God was with David because David had humbled himself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And that is, of course, one of the most difficult things for us to do because we tend to be proud. You may have noticed. Evil men are frightened when God pours his blessing on good men. Ever notice? Evil men are frightened when God pours out his blessing on good men. In his sin-darkened mind, Saul has become irrationally fearful of David. And we read in the verse, it said, Saul dreaded David. The The word can also be translated terrified. Saul was terrified of David. Saul is the king. David's this this young shepherd who's in his employ. And yet Saul is terrified of him. Why? Because the spirit of God dwells in him. The nation viewed David as their national hero, their champion, their greatest hope for the future. And David became everything that Saul wanted to be in the eyes of his people. Thus Saul became obsessive in his antipathy towards David. David. He hated the man who had become what he wanted to be. And that's the difference between a man who is living of the world and by the world and for the world and a man who is humbly serving God. And that's what we, of course, need to do in in our lives, is to be sure that we're humble and that we stalwartly obey the word. We may not kill a literal Goliath, but we have lots of Goliath. Goliaths that come along our way. And in David's case, Saul is becoming yet another Goliath, not that one that he will slay. In fact, he will do everything he can to preserve Saul's life, but one he will have to deal with for for years ahead. Well, next Sunday, we'll pick up with verse 17.